Hello and welcome again to another edition of Lost in Science across Australia on the Community Radio Network. My name is Stu and in the studio with me is Beth. And what have you got on this show, Beth? Hi Stu. Um, Well, I'm going to be looking at the recent Brontosaurus comeback. So finding out what's going on there. Um, Why did it go away? Why did it come back? Don't call this a comeback. He's been here for years. No? Um, Alright, I'm going to be talking about mice and how mice are not as quiet as we may have been led to believe. And also, Chris is talking to Dian Stianovich about a crowdfunding campaign, which is aiming to raise money to help save the Tasmanian swift parrot from extinction. So uh, more of that later in the show. Traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. That's the signpost up ahead. Your next stop. Lost in science. So you might have heard out there that the Brontosaurus is back, kind of proving that science stands still for no one. Um, you may have thought it never went away but and that it wasn't actually a thing, but the Brontosaurus as a dinosaur was bumped off by scientists as not being a legitimate species in its own right, um, but being actually a dinosaur called an Apatosaurus. Um, and that was because bones were discovered by a paleontologist slightly before the bones of Brontosaurus was discovered by another paleontologist. But this this was all sorted out years ago, though, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, I mean, I learned about the name Brontosaurus mm. as a kid, but it was already discredited years before I was even born. So yeah. how did this... The science was kind of settled and like there was a... Before this, there was a whole drama, historic drama. It was called The Bone Wars, but that's like another story. Um, but yeah, the science was settled, but Brontosaurus has stuck around in the popular imagination. We just kind of didn't want to let it go. Because they're cool. They're cool. I don't know what it is. It's somehow stuck. It really Happy did. vegetarian dinosaurs yeah. with big long necks and... Yeah. Yeah, and who wants, you know, Apatosaurus? I don't know. It just doesn't, it doesn't roll off the tongue, does it? It doesn't. It doesn't roll off the tongue at all. Um, so luckily, uh, it has been recently put back on the map um, by a group of researchers who looked at the, the whole family of those kinds of dinosaurs, and they're called a diplodocid. Um, as a group, the diplodocids are pretty great or were pretty great. Um, they're all very big, but relatively slender. And so they long. have long necks and long tails? Yeah, long necks, long tails, but quite short legs. So they're kind of like the sausage dog of the dinosaur world. Kind of look like Dino from the Flintstones, if anyone remembers that. Yes. And I quite like that they've got this long tail, which is a little bit like a whip. Um, and researchers think that it was actually used like a whip. They used to crack it, which is quite, quite exciting. Um, they've found fossils that have fused or damaged tail vertebrae so they think that they used to whip it and make really loud noises in excess like a sonic boom actually in excess of 200 decibels so that's pretty loud wow yep so was that to scare things off or oh, they, they don't, don't really, really know. know who knows why you'd want to whip your tail very or loudly scare each other i don't you know, know some sort we of impress each other yeah showing off kind of stuff who can say who's got the loudest whip cracking tail exactly hmm Anyway, back to the paper that has brought the Brontosaurus back, um, making us all happy. Well, um, me at least. I'm quite happy that it is back. Um, The researchers uh, analysed nearly 500 anatomical traits in dozens of specimens. So they kind of measured bones methodically. 
um, and they created a family tree. And they, they did this by doing statistics on the, the information of bone measurement. So they basically pumped all this data into a yeah. computer and it spat out a result. Yeah, yeah. They, to say how um, closely related certain um, dinosaurs were based on these traits. So, they, so kind did, of an evolutionary tree, like how they evolved through time. Yeah, like a phylogenetic tree. Yeah, yeah right. That's right. Um, so they spent five years amassing this data. They visited 20 museums across Europe and the United States. So there's a lot of work that went into it. Um, they take they this got, very seriously. I'm glad they got a nice holiday out of it, too, yeah, going, going to museums across Europe and the United States. Yeah, I'm yeah. sure that was a lovely time. So <laughs> paleontologists have a great time. Well, these guys are probably more statisticians rather than I'm not sure how it works. I'm, I'm sure there's statistics mm. involved in all mm. branches of science. Mm-hmm. So... They placed the dino dino bones into kind of species dependent on how similar or different their bone dimensions were. And they concluded that Apatosaurus and Brontosaurus were different enough to belong to their own genre. Oh, okay. Species genre. Um, And what seemed to get this conclusion over the line is that Apatosaurus has a much stouter neck. So it's kind of different statistically to be its own species through this evolutionary tree. Okay. So So they, they look different enough. And they have different physical characteristics. Well, yeah, the difference was significant enough yeah. to put them as a different genre. Well, there you go. So there you go. So just like that, the Brontosaurus is back. Welcome back, Brontosaurus. Welcome back. Um, it feels like you never left, but it's good that you are back. Um, so you never know. Don't lose hope. Maybe Pluto will come back one day. I'm not sure. Well, Pluto's a dog, though. <laughs> Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. We are taught from a very young age that mice are very quiet animals, and if we're trying to do something quietly, we should try to be as quiet as a mouse. Have you ever been told that? Mm-hmm. Little tiny, teeny tiny paws. Mm. Um, but of course, to human ears, Mice are very quiet, and you might hear them scratching around, or you occasionally hear an audible squeak mm-hmm. from a little mouse. Um, but it mostly serves them to be quiet. You know, they're very tiny, and things will hunt them and try and eat them. And if they're quiet, then they stay out of the way. Um, but of course, for mice, uh, there are times when it might be helpful or very useful to be able to audibly communicate with other mice. Um, such as when they're very young or when they're trying to find a mate. And mice, it seems, are able to communicate with each other. It's just that our ears are not attuned to their mousy frequencies. So mice can make ultrasonic noises that they can hear, but we can't hear. Um, And apparently different breeds of mice have different sounds. So what I'm going to do, we're going to have a listen to some of the different sounds they make. And these have been altered obviously, so our feeble human ears can hear them.
Wow, they've got a lot to say. They do, and that was that was I think four or five different types of mouse, different breeds of mouse, and they all have different little chatters that they chat to each other. Um, so, so when we hear a mouse, does that mean that they're just speaking at a very low frequency for them? For and them, when we can hear them, yeah. that's really, really deep. They're kind of like Yeah, that's a grunting. deep, booming voice. Yeah, yeah. this high school. Um, if we can hear it. Because yep. mostly all of that stuff is well above the range of our normal human hearing. Um, so some researchers presented their work on cataloguing these mouse cries at the 2012 annual meeting of the Society for Neuroscience. Um, and the reason they're doing that is because language and neuroscience are very well, neuroscientists are very interested in language because it's a very complex use of the brain. So they think if they look at a simple sort of speech pattern, they might be able to draw comparisons with human neuroscience as well. Um, but they're not really sure of what the differences mean in these calls. So they might be, you know, genetic or they might be sort of communicated um, socially. So they might pick up different patterns uh, as they grow up. Um, and they all differ in complexity and duration between these different breeds of mouse. So they're not really sure how important that is or whether it's important at all or whether it's just, you know, um, the, like the difference between songbird songs from one place to another um, and that sort of thing. Um, so trying to work out what these calls do mean, some researchers have looked at baby mice, which, you know, who call out to their mothers. Um, but they reckon that they're probably reflexive vocalizations and they don't give much of an indication of meaning. So they're more like the cries of newborn babies, which uh, they do have information in them, but most of that information is, where is that baby? The baby's like saying, hey, I'm over here, come and help me out. And that's probably what the baby mice are doing as well, is just going, um, hello, come and help us, we need help. Um, but more recently, researchers have been studying the calls of male mice, and male mice actually make calls to attract female mice um, as potential mates. And uh, what they've found is that they've discovered differences based on how close by the female mouse is to where the male mouse is. So um, in one experiment, they took some female mouse urine and put a sample of that in the enclosure of a male mouse. And we'll just have a listen to the um, the sound that the male mouse made when he was exposed to the smell of female mouse urine. So that was pretty, you know, pretty amazing little song that he's singing and he's sort of pretty impressive really and there's no female there he can't see female he can just smell that there's one somewhere around so he's just kind of broadcasting he's just sort of going hey check me out i'm over here (laughs) come come and find me get a get a bit closer to me here's my amazing tricky little song um and this is what this is the same mouse the same male mouse when they actually put a live female mouse in with him and he sings quite a different song So what they found was that it was a lot shorter 
and he repeated himself. So he just sort of sang this little song going, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, I'm here. But when when they're further away, he seems to a do bit more ornate. Yeah, a do, bit do a more. bit more work to try and yeah, attract okay. their attention, mm. I guess. Um, yeah, it's interesting uh, the difference between the two different um, songs. Um, and, yeah, the first one is a lot more complex. And uh, they, they actually think that when um, – when they when they sing these songs that the females sort of make decisions based on how complex and how much effort the male puts into the song might influence the female's decision of whether or not they'll go and check them out, have a look, investigate further. Um, but obviously we're still a long way from deciphering what uh, what's the meaning of these ultrasonic mouse speeches. Um, but I actually found there is a website that they've put up called MouseTube, where different researchers from all over the world can upload their different recordings of ultrasonic mouse speech so they can compare them and hopefully come up with some sort of... Mega mouse database. Yeah, that's right. Sort out what they're trying to say. What are they trying to tell us? What are they trying to tell us? Yeah. Um, well, maybe they're just trying to tell each other things, I yeah, think. Um, but right. yeah, maybe maybe have a look on MouseTube if you want to hear some more mouse talking That was Little Mouse There by Jack Morgan. Okay, you are listening to Lost in Science. My name's Chris and I'm speaking to Dian Stojanovic, a conservation biologist from the Australian National University who's one of the people running a crowdfunding campaign to help save Tasmania's swift parrot from extinction. Now, there's been a lot of support for their campaign so far, but the threat to these birds and other species is very severe and there's still much more needed. So, um, Dian, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Now, you've been studying the swift parrot for a number of years now, I understand. What got you interested in them in the first place? Um, to be really honest with you, it was just pure accident and necessity. <laughs> I was going to work on another, uh, on another species of black cockatoo in Western Australia, but then uh, my PhD program fell through. And then at that exact moment, one of my colleagues, well, one of my now colleagues, Matt Webb, um, came to my boss and said, hey, I'm, I want to do a PhD on swift parrots and there's plenty of work that needs to be done. Know anyone that wants to help? And he said, actually, I do. <laughs> and, and within two weeks, I'd driven my car from Perth to Hobart and was working on swift parrots. <laughs> Brilliant. So what is the situation with the swift parrots? Um, well, look, we, it's kind of, it's, it's, it's not terribly good news, unfortunately. I mean, we, when I started my project, um, very little was known, not a lot had been done, but there had been kind of this assumption for quite a long time that they were in trouble because their habitat has been severely, severely deforested both Mm. in Tasmania and on the mainland. And so, you know, it's a bit of a no-brainer that when you you remove most of the habitat for an animal, it's probably not going to be a good thing. 
Um, so we kind of assumed that it was uh, in trouble just as a consequence of habitat loss. But over the course of our five years of research on this bird, we've um, come to discover that actually it's a there's a, there's a whole cascade of, of subtle interactions that, that stem from that, that loss of habitat, which then flow on to a predator and ultimately to the survival of the swift parrot. So um, our research basically has shown that um, as a consequence of predation by uh, the deceptively cute sugar glider, swift parrots are actually on track for up to a 94% population decline, which makes them well and truly uh, fit, the, fit the bill for being listed as critically endangered. Sugar gliders, you say. How, how did you feel when you found out that sugar gliders were eating the swift parrots? So conflicted, actually. Really conflicted, because I was I, and, and, like, almost betrayed. I really love sugar gliders, and, and I, I was really, like, I, I was very hopeful that it was going to be something like rats, because it's easy to hate rats. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but when... Uh, when the, when, when the first camera showed that it was a glider, I was kind of alone in the forest and didn't quite believe my own results at that, that exact moment. But then, you know, camera after camera after camera and dead bird after dead bird after dead bird, and it's pretty hard to, hard to dispute the evidence. And, I mean, it's just, yeah, it's just so surprising. I mean, I know biologists that have worked on gliders that have questioned, is that really possible that they're eating? I mean, you know, sure, I can believe they might eat some bird, but that much and it's true and it's just yeah startling so this is at their nesting site in tasmania is that right yeah that's right that's right so swift parrots only breed in tas and um they migrate there just for the winter for the summer to, to breed and um there's actually quite a lot of evidence that sugar gliders were introduced to tasmania that they're not actually native to the area um and uh yeah so it's just in these it's just in these forests on mainland tasmania where where swift parrots nest in years where flower attracts them to the to the area that they just get hammered by sugar gliders. Pretty much wherever they nest on the mainland is 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 just a trap for for uh, swift parrots. It's terrible. Okay, so what are you trying to do with your crowdfunding campaign? So our crowdfunding is 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 basically there's there's, there's uh, two or three very simple aims. The first uh, point about the crowdfunding is that we've broadened it out from just the swift parrot. I mean, swift parrots are have been the focal species of my research for the last five years. But Tasmania is home to two other very seriously threatened birds. There's the 40-spotted pardlote, which is kind of a cute little kind of greenish, olive-coloured bird with uh, yellowy cheeks and, you know, spotty wings. Uh, and they are now almost totally restricted to two sugar glider-free offshore islands, um, even though they used to be much more widespread on the Tasmanian mainland. Um, and there's the orange-bellied parrot, which is critically endangered, very beautiful little kind of Granny Smith apple green with a, with a yellow and orange belly. This stunning little creature, but now only uh, occur in one place in the World Heritage Area in western Tasmania. Wow. And they've been reduced to less than 60 birds. I mean, this year they only bred 25 or so nestlings. It's just they're, they're just right on their last legs now. And uh, both of those species, uh, well, particularly for the orange-bellied parrot, there's actual evidence that sugar gliders directly uh, killed and ate orange-bellied parrots at one of the locations where they used to occur. Um, wow. So we, we know that, <laughs> that to some extent sugar gliders have contributed to their decline, but there's just not a lot of evidence for, for the scale and severity of their impact on OBPs, simply because OBPs have gone extinct from most of the places where they used to occur. 
So we're, we're bringing these two species into the fold. Uh, the first major aim is to raise the, raise the carrying capacity of safe glider-free offshore islands for swift parrots and 40 spotted partilotes. And we aim to do that by putting up nest boxes on islands where sugar gliders don't occur so that 40 spots and swift parrots, when they're nesting, are safe and can produce babies and hopefully push the species in the opposite direction away from extinction. Okay. The next part is to actually try and understand what's happening in the World Heritage Area in Western Tasmania uh, from an orange-bellied parrot perspective. So the plan there is to use nest boxes as a survey tool for sugar gliders uh, at, at the places where OBPs used to occur uh, so that we can understand where are gliders relative to where the OBPs are and of the sites where OBPs used to occur, where we suspect there's still good habitat, is it safe to consider those places as, as, a, as a potential location for another backup population for the, for the last remaining one? So, I mean, you know, if a wildfire or something goes through where the OBPs are now, we've got, we've got no backup and we need a backup. So that's the other aim. And then the third aim of the, uh, of the crowdfunding is to uh, try uh, and basically we've got a few ideas for how to make a glider-proof nest box and we want to try them out and just see whether they work. And then if we can pull that off, that'll mean essentially that areas where sugar gliders currently occur, which are very dangerous habitat for swift parrots and 40 spots and OBPs, might be able to be made a little bit safer by the addition of glider-proof nest boxes. Now, you said before that deforestation is seems to be like the ultimate driver of this. Uh, is there any help here from the state and federal governments? Um, look, it's, it's, Swift, Swifties are a species, uh, and, and I'm speaking mostly from Swift parrots because that's uh, from a Swift parrot perspective when it comes to forestry because that's the species that overlaps its distribution with, with um, most forestry, I suppose. So, I mean, it's managing Swift parrots is, is kind of fraught because... They feed on flowering trees and as a consequence of kind of variation in where flowering happens in any one year, they nest in a different place each year. And so that means that from a manager's perspective, when you're operating in a system where uh, you reserve land in a kind of static way, you say, okay, we cannot, we, we will not touch any of the habitat in this particular area. That's a reserve. Everything else is fair game. That might be good if you're a snail or something that doesn't move very far. Um, but for swift parrots, it, it just fails to capture the variation that they're responding to in their habitat. And so there's a, there's a real challenge here uh, to, to understand how we can you know, support extractive industries in, in swift parrot breeding habitat whilst actually you know, achieving the, uh, the, the goals of species protection, which which is uh, what the RFA and the EPBC Act are supposed to be doing. Um, and, you know, in the last couple of weeks, we've had some interesting news that revelations with uh, freedom of information documents coming out to say that, you know, uh, the, the Tasmanian government has ignored advice from its own scientists, which, which very clearly said do not log um, these particular patches because they're important for swift parrots. And we've seen... The, uh, the Freedom of Information documents reveal that that advice was completely ignored. So, I mean, you know, there's really concerning patterns like that, which we really need to get to the bottom of. I mean, we're either serious about protecting these species or we're not. Right. Well, it sounds like then it is the work you're doing in getting um, public support is, is um, it's up to the people, basically, to, to try and tackle this. 
Yeah. Uh, and it does sound like you had the public behind you. Um, now, I understand you can be found on the Possible website. Yep, that's right. That's right. On the front page, it's uh, if you if you Google Possible Save Taz Bird, you'll find us. Brilliant. Uh, yep. So, yeah, well, we'll put the link up on our website and our Facebook page for people to find that as well. That's uh, great. You can also find us on Twitter at Team Swift Parrot. Brilliant. Well, thank you once again. Um, that was Dion Stojanovic from the Australian National University. come to the end of another episode of Lost in Science on the Community Radio Network. Thanks for joining us. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at lostinsci at gmail.com or you can leave a comment on our blog, which is lostinscience.wordpress.com. And we're also on Facebook and Twitter if you want to look for us there. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If that's not enough information, you can tune in again next week when Chris, Beth and Stuart get lost in science! listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.